to transfer the Bible's application from one culture to another. When Christian missionaries reached Africa back in the colonial days, one of the challenges they faced in Africa was polygamy. It was common in many places in Africa, especially the rural villages, for African men who could afford to do so to have several wives. And in the understanding of many of the missionaries, polygamy was clearly unbiblical and an example of terrible male lust. And, and so many missionaries required their male converts, if they wanted to be baptized as Christians, to divorce and send away all of the extra wives they had except for the first. The missionary said, this is an act of repentance. As a result, many Africans chose not to become Christians, but another unintended consequence was that when African men did choose Christianity over their families, many of their former wives, along with their children, were plunged into desperate poverty and devastating social exclusion. Because in those cultures, women found their place in society and their economic security through marriage. What the missionaries didn't always understand was that in that culture, there were more women than men for various reasons, and polygamous marriage was to a large extent practiced for economic and social reasons to take care of these women. And so as divorced single mothers now, these former wives had no means of economic support. They had no place to belong in their communities. Now, whether you think the Bible forbids polygamy or not, what this story illustrates is that we have to be careful and thoughtful when we translate our understanding of how the Bible should be applied um, as we move from one culture to another. Missionaries deal with this all the time. And if we're going to read our Bibles well, we will deal with it too, because as we saw last Sunday, the Bible wasn't written or originally addressed to the culture that we live in. To put it another way, the Bible was written for us, but it was not originally written to us, at least directly. The Bible was written for us. God inspired it to be written, knowing that it would be God's word for his people down through the ages for thousands of years in places and cultures all over the world. But originally, the Bible was not written to us. It was not written in English. It was not written with 21st century American culture in mind, primarily. It was written in the first place to address what was going on thousands of years ago to people in the Near East and the Roman Empire. And so in a very real sense, when we read the Bible, we are reading someone else's mail. Now, it is our mail too. God inspired it to be written for us as well. It is God's word to us. All of it carries God's authority for us. Yet when we read it and when we interpret it, we have to realize that it was written to someone else first. And so it comes to us in their language, in their cultural context, addressing the issues they were facing. And that's why the Bible doesn't say much about some of the issues we wish it would be clearer on. There's not much in the Bible about in vitro fertilization or cloning. There's not much about fracking or health insurance or campaign finance reform. Wouldn't it be nice if there was? <laughs> so the best we can do is we can look for principles in God's word which can help us to figure out godly ways to handle these sorts of issues today. God doesn't deal with these issues directly in the Bible because the Bible was first given to a people who didn't deal with those issues. So the question is, how do we 
read the Bible then today? And we began looking at this question last week using the issue of slavery as a case study. Just to quickly review some of what we learned last week. We first saw that communication is hard work. Even when that communication is between us and God, we're prone to miscommunication and to misunderstanding. That's why there's so many different Christian beliefs, so many different denominations in the world. Some of us aren't as good at understanding as others of us, and we can't figure out who. (laughs) Uh, I know it's me, and you know it's you. (laughs) Um, So we have to work hard at it. We have to roll up our sleeves and earnestly and prayerfully study this book. We also saw that common sense doesn't always serve us well as we read our Bibles. Because as we saw, what's common sense in one culture isn't always common sense in another. Like for those colonial missionaries, it was just common sense for them that polygamy was sinful. And yet, for many of the Africans, as they began to read this Bible, which they received from the missionaries, it wasn't common sense to them at all that polygamy was sinful. I mean, what about Abraham? What about King David? They had several wives. So, since common sense is not always helpful, we looked at two other rules of thumb last week which can help us interpret the Bible. And yet, we saw these rules of thumb, while they're helpful, we have to use them carefully because they have their limitations. The first rule of thumb is to let the clear passages of Scripture help us interpret the less clear passages. While this is a good rule of thumb, we saw that what's clear to us isn't always so clear to another person or another culture. Also, we have to be careful not to use what we think are the clear passages to erase or to to dismiss other parts of Scripture which we don't like or don't currently understand. Or to ignore the tensions between texts, tensions which God intended us to grapple with. Last week, we looked at the, the tension of Paul saying we're saved by grace and James saying, um, or by grace through faith, but James saying faith without works is dead, right? The, the second rule of thumb we saw that we can use, but we have to be careful with, has to do with how we know if a scripture's application applies directly only to a certain situation or culture or universally and always. And this involves looking at the reason that the biblical author gives for the command that they issue. If the reason appeals to something in that situation or in that culture, then the application might be cultural. But if the reason appeals to scripture, then the application might be universal. But we saw last week that we have to be careful with this too because there are clear examples in scripture when a biblical author uses scripture to back up a command they're issuing for a specific situation. Last time we looked at the example of Paul collecting money from the Corinthians to help those Jews in Jerusalem who were suffering suffering from the famine. So we ended last time in a bit of a quandary. If we can't always rely on common sense and our rules of thumb don't always work, then how do we figure how to take a scripture which was given to another culture and apply it to our own? And I promised this morning I'd answer the question. That's why you came back, right? Um, Well, I can't give you the whole answer in the next 25 minutes, but (laughs) let me suggest two good starting points. The first is that we need to read the Bible in community. The Bible is meant to be read in community. 
Do you know that until relatively recent history, the Bible was almost always only read in community? Until the invention of the printing press, most Christians did not have their own Bibles. And many of them couldn't read anyway. And so their only access to the Bible was when they gathered together in community to hear it read, to memorize it together. That way they could take it home. To hear it taught and to discuss it together. The Bible was and is a community book given by God to the community of the church. It's only recently that we all have our own copies and and can go home and read it on our own. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't read it alone. We should. I hope you'll read it often. But don't just read it alone. Read it in conversation with others, in church services, in Bible studies, in conversations with friends. Also, read it in conversations in conversation with others who have studied it more long and more carefully than you have. That's what commentaries are and Bible study materials. They are ways of of reading the Bible in community with others who we can learn a lot from. Now, for those of you who've been participating in the discussion that we've been having in the lounge on the topic of women's leadership over the past weeks, you've heard me say this just about every week. And that is that we can learn more from those we disagree with than, and from those who see things differently from us than from those who believe just what we believe. Proverbs says, um, the story of one man sounds really good until someone comes and cross-examines them with another perspective. And, and that's one of the strengths of, of CBC, I think. We're a diverse group of people. We, we have certain central beliefs in common. We were singing about them this morning. We believe this book is God's word, that God inspired it, that what's written in here is trustworthy, and so it, it's our authority for what we believe and how we live. We believe in one God who's revealed himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior and our Lord who was crucified and rose again from the grave and who's coming back. We agree on these points and other points as well. But there are also a lot of things that people at CBC have different perspectives on. We're, we're a diverse group. Some, uh, we're diverse uh, in some of our political views. We're diverse in our denominational backgrounds. We're diverse in the countries and the cultures that we grew up in. And so there's a lot that we can learn from each other as we read this book in conversation with one another. We can help each other become aware of our own cultural biases, our own presuppositions, which influence how we read the Bible and which maybe are causing us to misunderstand some things. And so the first starting point for reading the Bible is to read it in community as God's people. The second is to read it as a story, a true story. The Bible is not a behavioral manual, though it has plenty to say about our behavior. The Bible is not a theology textbook, though it has plenty to say about theology. First and foremost, the Bible is a story, God's story, a true story. Greg Howe, who speaks at CBC frequently, has described a couple times the helpful way that the New Testament scholar N.T. Wright gives us to think about this. Wright encourages us to think of the Bible as a play with five acts. Act one is creation. It tells how God made the world and it was very good. Act two is fall. It tells how human beings turned away from God and and the world got wrecked and ruined in part, though not completely. 
Act three is Israel. Here's where we begin to see God's work of redemption and restoration. This act tells how God chose a people for himself to begin restoring the world, and yet how that people ultimately failed to cooperate with God, failed at the mission God gave them. The fourth act, then, is Jesus. This act tells how Jesus succeeded where Israel failed. How uh, Jesus, God's son, accomplished the redemption of the world. But this redemption still has to be worked out in the fifth act, which is the church. In this act, Jesus and the Holy Spirit send out a movement of God's people to live out and to work out the redemption that Jesus accomplished in the fourth act. But here's the challenge. Part of the fifth act is missing. God didn't give it to us in the Bible. We have the first scene of the fifth act, which tells us about the early church in the book of Acts and the epistles. And we have the last scene of the fifth act, the picture in Revelation and other places about how it all turns out in the end with the new heavens and the new earth. But we don't have the middle of the fifth act. That's because we're living in it. We're the actors on the stage now, living out the story. But how do we know what to do? Well, we study the first four acts. We get to know them well. We learn the flow of the story and the heart of the one who is writing it. And we get clear in our minds as well how it's supposed to end at the end of the story. And based on that and with the Holy Spirit's help, we live out our part. In other words, Scripture has a plot. It tells how God made the world good, how humanity messed it up, and how God has been working since then to not only restore it, but in the end to make it even better than it ever was. The Bible tells this story. The Bible is not just a behavioral manual or an encyclopedia of religious facts. It's a story. And one more thing we need to recognize about this story is this. That the time in the story between Israel, Act 3, and new creation, end of Act 5, is a time of transition. It's a time when we're still living in a fallen world with the results of the fall all around us. And yet God is working in and through his people to redeem it and to restore it. And so whenever we read what God says to people during this time between Israel and new creation, we have to ask, is what God is saying here about accommodating the fall or is it about redeeming the fall, moving it toward perfection? Because you can only redeem the world so fast. And so in the meantime, God does what every authority figure does. God makes certain accommodations to the way the world is even as God's moving it toward what it should be. Let me give you a few examples of this, two practical ones and one from Scripture. First, uh, take smoking, for instance. Most lawmakers realize that it would be better overall for our country if nobody smoked. But it's not practical to outlaw smoking completely. So laws limit it, uh, but they also allow it as an accommodation. Or another example, when I was a child, my parents made accommodation for me when it came to junk food because they were crazy health conscious. And and so they really wished I would eat sprouts and uh, stuff like that all the time. (laughs) I I won't bore you with all the painful details. (laughs) But um, they knew I went to friends' houses 
And I went to church potlucks. And junk food was served there, and it wasn't practical to forbid me completely from eating it, so they made accommodations. We see Jesus doing this. He's talking to the Pharisees about the question of divorce. You remember that story? They come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, can we men divorce our wives for any and every reason? And Jesus says, no, you shouldn't divorce your wives at all. And they reply, but, but what about Moses? What about the scriptures? Moses said that we could divorce our wives as long as we gave them a certificate of divorce and sent them away. And what does Jesus say? He says, Moses let you do that because of the hardness of your hearts. It was an accommodation. Not because God was okay with divorce, but because God knew that in this fallen world, men were going to divorce their wives. And so God didn't forbid it altogether, but he did put rules in place to make sure that the wife at least had a document from you which allowed her to know where she stood. It was an accommodation. And so all this theory should be clearer as we now apply it to a real-life issue like the issue of slavery. So let's work out using our, our scripture passage, Ephesians 6, 5 to 9, which begins, Slaves, obey your masters. Let's work out how this might work in practice. The first thing we have to do is place this text where it occurs in the biblical story. And, and this is the easy part. Not creation, not fall, not Israel, not Jesus, but church, right? Paul's writing to the early church. The harder part is then to ask, is God allowing slavery in the early church? Is his allowing of it part of his uh, perfect redemption plan because slavery is a good thing? Or is it an accommodation to the continuing effects of the fall in first century culture? Are you following me? What the question is? Okay. Is God allowing slavery as an accommodation to a sinful culture? As in, God's not really happy with slavery, but God knows that redeeming all things, making things perfect, takes a long time, and right now, there are other more pressing priorities. Or, on the other hand, is God allowing slavery because he's just plain okay with slavery? Now remember, we learned last week that we shouldn't be too quick to answer. We have to be careful about just relying on our common sense to answer. Why? Because common sense is often just cultural sense. It's what seems right to us in our culture, but it may not be what they think in another culture, and it may not be what God actually thinks. So what do we do? How do we answer? Well, what we do is we trace the biblical story through the five acts, and we see at each point along the story how God handles slavery. To do this, we, we ask two questions at each point in the story. Was slavery already part of the culture at that time? And how did God handle it? That should give us an idea of where God's story is headed when it comes to slavery. So we start with Act 1, creation. Was slavery part of the culture at creation? And how did God handle it? Well, Scripture doesn't give us any evidence that slavery was part of creation. And I hear some of you saying that, that no, it must not have been because the world was good and we assume, assume slavery is not good. But, but scripture doesn't actually tell us directly one way or another much about slavery at creation. So we better keep reading the story. We get to act two, the fall. Well, yeah, the fall, after the fall, slavery shows up in the, in the cultures of the ancient Near East. We, we learn in Exodus that the Israelites are slaves in Egypt and, and that God's not happy about it. And so now we move to act three, Israel. 
And here we learn a lot about slavery. We learn that slavery was a common reality in the culture of Israel and in the surrounding cultures too. And we see that God doesn't forbid it completely, but God does begin to put limits on it. If you read the the law of Moses in Exodus and Deuteronomy and Numbers, you see that God says to his chosen people that they needed to treat their slaves well and that that God gives various laws to protect them. And that after seven years, God actually requires that all Israelite slaves go free. So it seems like God is not thrilled about slavery when you read the books of Moses. That that it's in the culture and God allows it as an accommodation, but among his chosen people, God starts to limit it. God starts to tame it. Okay, move to Act 4, Jesus. Slavery still exists in the culture of Jesus' day. And Jesus says he's come to set the captives free. He says that, that rather than lording it over others like the Gentiles do, we should all have the attitude of servants serving one another. The least will be the greatest. In other words, don't force others to serve you. You willingly serve them. Jesus' teaching makes it hard to see how slavery could last very long among his followers. And then we get to Act 5, the church. Slavery's still a reality in the cultures of the Roman Empire. And in fact, we know a lot about it because thinkers and and politicians at that time wrote lots of what are called household codes. They're they're rules that explain how relationships should work in Roman households. And these codes frequently told slaves to obey their masters, wives to obey their husbands, and children to obey their fathers. Now notice, master, husband, father, that's all the same person. That's the man who was the head of the house. In Roman culture, we know that it was called, or he was called the paterfamilias, the, father fam, the, the family father. He was the husband of the family, the master of the family, the father of the family. And in Roman household codes, he had all of the power. Everyone was to obey him, and his only responsibility to them in the codes was to rule over them. Well, Paul writes us a household code too. Our, our verses in Ephesians 6 are part of it. And the striking thing about Paul's code is that he does what none of the other codes do. He tells the paterfamilias that he has responsibilities as well to those in his household. Paul says, husbands, love your wives. Fathers, don't exasperate your children. Masters, verse 9, treat your slaves in the same way. That is the same way they're supposed to submit to you. Do not threaten them since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. Do you see how Paul is accommodating slavery? It exists in that culture, but as God did in the Old Testament, God's word is now placing limits on it, calling masters to be accountable and to treat their slaves well. Okay, so step back from all that. That was really quick. You really want to take more time and go through all the verses in detail. What does the Bible tell us from all that about the direction that God's redemption is moving in contrast to the surrounding culture? It's in the direction of less oppression and more love and equality, right? And this fits with where the biblical story is headed at the end of Act 5 in the new heavens and the new earth, where Paul tells us there will be neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free in Christ, 
or there is. And Revelation 21 and 22 tells us that there will be no more suffering, no more crying, no more mourning. And I think it's safe to say, if all those are true, no more slavery. Do you see the plot trajectory? Do you see the way that the story flows? And so fast forward now to America in the 1800s. Slavery has been a part of the human story for thousands of years, but now culture is changing, both under the influence of Christianity and also under the influence of Enlightenment humanism. Slavery is being questioned in the culture by secular people and by many Christian people too. But Bible-believing Christians want to know, what does the Bible say? Because that's our authority. So some of them open their Bibles, their behavioral manuals, and they look up slavery in the index, their concordance. And they find several entries for slavery, and they turn to the clearest, or maybe the most familiar to them, Ephesians 6, 5. And what do they read? Slaves, obey your earthly masters. Well, it doesn't take a rocket scientist. It seems pretty clear. It's just common sense. The angry liberals may want to do away with slavery, but that's worldly. That's a political agenda. We rely on God's word. We know God tells slaves to obey their masters. We know that God is okay with slavery. So in God's name, we're going to defend slavery. Many Christians argued that way in the 1800s. It's uh, great that they respected God's word. That is admirable. But the question is, were they reading their Bibles well? Were they interpreting them correctly? Contrast that with other Christians who opened their Bibles and discovered that the world has fallen, but God is redeeming it. That slavery is a part of the fall, but it's on its way out. That sure, God allowed it when the culture was repressive. God knows cultures change slowly, and so he just nudged his people toward freedom and encouraged masters to be kind to their slaves. But finally, now, God is changing the culture. Maybe as a result of the efforts of Christians, maybe in God's common grace, God is even working through some secular people too, despite themselves. But the culture is moving toward liberation for slaves. And, and these Christians said, we know that the story of Scripture, we know from the story of Scripture that that's God's heart. That's where God's big story is moving, and so we're going to get on board. Do you see how these are two very different ways of reading Scripture? Reading the Bible as a moral encyclopedia is, is the easier way to read it. it. It gives us quick answers and clear answers. But are they the right answers? Or does, does that approach make us more prone to misunderstand God? Does it make us prone to miss the big picture, the big story of salvation, which all of Scripture is telling and which God has been working out all through history? So here's the question I want to leave us with. A professor once challenged us with this when I was in seminary. Now that we're living in Act 5, in the days of the church, the days when we still live in a fallen world, and God is still making some accommodations to that fallenness, but, but at the same time, God is working out his redemption, working it in us, working it through us, working toward the restoration and the redemption of all things. Here's the question for each of us to consider. How much of that redemption can you stand? Say it again? Okay. So we, we live in this world where the world is still fallen, and yet God is redeeming it. 
We live in between the times as God is moving all things toward redemption. How much of that redemption can we stand? I'll leave you to think about that.